G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day everyone, welcome to the Footyology Podcast. Our uh, summer series continues in the lead up to the National Draft, a bit over a week away, pretty late one this year. Of course, everything's been pushed back because of the dreaded coronavirus and that's something fortunately here in uh, these parts, Melbourne town I'm talking about, we're uh, worrying about that a lot less after, uh, well, today, our 33rd day in a row of uh, zero cases, zero deaths, and looks like we've just about stamped the dreaded thing out. So well done, Victoria. But, uh, yep, everything going back in the calendar a fair bit, fairly late finish to the pressing football affairs of 2020. As I say, very good morning to my footyology co-host, Mark Fine. How are you going, Finey? I'm very well. Uh, yeah, well done, all of us, for having 33 days without any coronavirus cases. I mean, look, in this country, we measure our cases in one here, one there. It's a completely different world beyond our shores. We have no idea how, I wouldn't say lucky we are. No, we are lucky that we're an island, so we can manage it better than countries with borders, land borders that are shared with other countries. But good management, good discipline means that we are a nation apart. And boy, oh boy, are we lucky for that. We are indeed. I'll tell you, something else uh, just occurred to me then. Someone should be keeping account on how many days since we've had to put up with Joe Hildebrand on our TV screens. But uh, I saw a vintage rant from a couple of guys on uh, the sweetest fruit, is it? Or the sweetest plum podcast. Uh, an epic rant about Joe Hildebrand, uh, formerly of Studio 10 fame, and his, um, uh, let's say, preponderance to annoy people, none the least me. So someone start putting a tally on how many days we've been Joe Hildebrand free on our TV screens because they are times for celebration as well. I'll tell you what else is a time for celebration, Finey. It's that moment you're venturing through the streets of Albert Park and you walk past a certain fast food establishment and go, I'll have me one of them. What would I be talking about? You're talking about 144 Bridport Street as a stop must have burger joint, Andrew's Hamburgers, for the award winning. Can you believe they've been going there into their 82nd year? I mean, that is an incredibly long time for a takeaway establishment. But it's true when you've got the perfect product, you keep going and going and just get more popular. Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. I had a quick uh, communication with one of the two Gregs down there yesterday. And, uh, well, they they never stopped uh, running, even during the worst times of this virus. But uh, things up and going again, full steam ahead. 
best burgers in town, the uh, delectable soft yet firm buns, the tender meat patties, the vegetables beating with uh, garden freshness and uh, any condiments uh, you so choose to uh, embellish your burger with. Uh, it's all there for you. The best burger, not only in Albert Park, not only in Melbourne, not only in Australia, not only in the world. In fact, not only in the universe. There are burger joints on Mars that don't hold a candle to Andrew's Hamburgers, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. And I'll tell you what, there are no home renovators in the universe, Finey, that can hold a candle to our good friend, Nick Spartels. What's he got to offer? West Point properties like Andrew's Hamburgers going strong and now in this new post-COVID reality going even stronger. If you're considering, just considering a home reno or a new home build in the inner southeastern suburbs of Melbourne, contact West Point properties because they have an eye for detail and a hands-on approach and quite honestly, a never say finished until the job is perfect attitude that means that you'll get the very very best from the best west point properties nick spartels you certainly will i told you all about the uh heated concrete that my hobo out the back was uh very very comfortable with summer's coming now so he's looking to extend the corrugated iron shed he in which he is residing uh I think so. he said something the other day in between swigs of the $2 sherry bottle, uh, something about a patio and a sunroof. So uh, he's doing all right for a hobo, and uh, I'm probably going to have to start charging him rent very soon. But if he does choose to renovate, I'm sure the um, boys at West Point Properties will look after him and uh, charge a very doable fee as well. He might have to hold back on the cheap sherry just for a week or two, but I'm sure it's very affordable for it. All right, enough drivel from me. Plenty more drivel to get through. No, it's not drivel. It's quality content. We've got footy news. We've got life hacks. We've got vinyl and video going back to a year in the late 90s this week. And, of course, the rant. It's all headed your way starting right now. On Footyology Newsfeed. Well, like I said, the draft coming up in about a week. Uh, plenty of news in the lead-up to that uh, about a variety of issues, Finey. I think the one that's probably occupied most airtime, certainly over the last few days, is uh, another, well, I hate to say it, another embarrassing episode for my club, the beleaguered Bombers. And uh, that concerns... An email sent out very late last Friday evening by Chief Executive Xavier Campbell to the playing group uh, asking them to take a 9% haircut on their November wages, which, uh, look, I mean, in itself, given the sorts of cutbacks and slashing of the salary cap we're seeing as a result of the pandemic, pretty predictable. But it's all in the communication, finally, and fair to say the players having not been told anything before receiving that e- uh, email and uh, close to Christmas, mortgages to pay, etc., they were a little perturbed to find that in their inbox just as they prepared for their weekends, straight on the phone to the AFL Players Association uh, and someone else got straight on the phone to the media who uh, embarrassed the Bombers severely, a uh, fair bit of backpedalling in light of that. 
and uh, now all hunky-dory, we're told. I don't know how easy it'll be to recover the breakdown in, um, or further breakdown in faith between the playing group and the administration. But, uh, gee, given the year Essendon's had finally, exactly the sort of episode they could ill afford, I would have thought. Yeah, I'd be very careful if I was involved with the Essendon Football Club opening up my secret Santa this year. I've got a feeling it might be a gag present for season or for year 2020. As you said, look, uh, pay cuts have been part of, we know, the horizon for footballers, especially with reduced salary caps. But these matters have been well communicated to managers and I think players from most clubs are aware of where they sit financially. Once again, there is something not quite right at the top at Essendon. And given that they go into this draft with a very strong hand at six, seven and eight, surely they want to welcome three very talented youngsters into the club uh, with those youngsters feeling as though they've been picked by a strong club by and. Essendon are traditionally a strong club, a, a powerful premiership-winning club and historically a very wealthy club. So whilst the finances aren't a matter of necessarily something in their hands, it's more a TPP matter, you still would love Essendon to have righted the ship post-season without this wobble. I, I guess it plays out, luckily, in the postseason, and I don't think, Rowan, that it will have any ongoing... I don't think there'll be a negative knock-on, in other words. I think they can sort this out. The Football is football. Finances are finances. Uh, you just don't want something like this lingering for too long. Publicly, they've said it won't. It hasn't. The players are pretty on board with that. So let's take that on face value and say it's another um, faux pas but nothing that'll play out on the field. No, I tend to agree with that. It's just it makes you think, well, what are you thinking or not thinking in not warning them this was coming before you dropped the email on them last thing on a Friday? I mean, it's just, that's what yeah. worries me as much as the actual fact of it happening. It's what is the thought process or, or lack thereof? Um, I will does, have it, a does it make you worry about what's coming next? Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Uh, fortunately at the moment for them, it's not games because they weren't going too well uh, when the season finished. But look, yeah, as you said, they've got a good draft hand at the moment, pick six, seven, eight. They've traded in a couple of decent uh, players, uh, Caldwell, Peter Wright, Nick Hines. So uh, hopefully that's the start of a turnaround in fortunes. But gee, it's been a pretty ordinary 12 months or so. Another good sign for them actually was the news on the re-signing of key forward James Stewart uh, on a two-year deal. Pretty interesting one, Stewart, because um, he had shocking groin issues in 2019. In fact, didn't play a game the entire year. He was sort of in that Joe Danaher boat and uh, things were looking pretty rocky for him. But uh, when he finally came back into the fray about halfway through this year, he actually performed uh, pretty well probably played an extended run of the best footy he's played for the Bombers. So uh, a lot of hopes pinned on him for next year. He and Peter Wright, of course, Danaher now not there. He'll be holding the fort. So some reasonable news there for them. Do you have any uh, particular view on James Stewart? 
I'm a huge rep for James Stewart. I really think, given that they've only just re-signed him, it means that he was a player sort of potentially up for grabs for another club during that trade period. That would have forced Essendon's hand. They just had to re-sign him. You know, there was a game this year, and it was one of the latter games of the season when Essendon was under siege. Something Essendon won't have the luxury of doing because of their paucity of tall forwards with the departure of Danaher. But he went back for half a game late in the season. Gee, he's a versatile big man. He, he went fit. We know he can mark up forward. Maybe his goal kicking is not dead-eyed dick, but he was great when he went in defence as well. Sort of reminiscent of his old man. Yeah, uh, Craig, of course, a terrific player for Collingwood and then later Richmond. He showed some pretty good form um, for them towards the end of 2017 when they got in the final. So, um, yeah, certainly not without some hopes there. Now, speaking of uh, salary issues and contracts, um, still a bit of argy-bargy going on on the Adam Trelaw front between Collingwood and the Western Bulldogs. Now, the issue there, the Bulldogs signed Trelaw on a five-year deal at 600000 per year. He was, of course, on, uh, thanks to some back-ending of contracts, on something like nine hundred a year for the Pies. Who is picking up that extra three hundred grand? Well, that is the bone of contention. Um, I think the other interesting thing here is the revelation that the AFL um, basically ticked off on the deal and gave him extra time to sort it out. So it sort of makes a bit of a a mockery of the deadlines we have on the trade period, doesn't it? Because, uh, you know, if we're going strictly by the book, that deal shouldn't have been allowed to go through, I wouldn't have thought. Rowan, to quote, I'll save one of my quotes from vinyl and video. Well, I'll use one of them now because, just so happens, it's one of my favourite movies of all time. And there is a moment in that movie where the great Jesus Quintana after having his league bowling semi-final delayed, turns around to John Goodman's character and says, Ha! Amateur! Bush League! Absolute Bush League! And that's what this is. This is amateur hour, mate. I mean, I, I don't honestly believe you can ring the bell on a trade when you haven't agreed on the trade. And especially given that there's a facility to extend that trade period. So this has obviously happened before by, what is it, a week or so? And then they can't ring the bell or can't sign off then. Then this trade hasn't happened. This is rubbish, mate. There are trades that didn't happen. Essendon didn't know this only too well. If trades don't happen, players miss out and clubs miss out. Carlton know it with Tom Papley. Sydney know it with Joe Danaher, but apparently Collingwood and the Bulldogs don't need to know it with Adam Trelaw. I am gobsmacked by this one, and I think it is amateur hour by the AFL, and it is bending and accommodating a deal that has not yet happened. It's wrong. Yep, and in a PR sense, it just adds to that perception that they're prepared to bend the rules or rewrite the rules at will to suit. Uh, no doubt, you know, all eyes were on the 
Trelaw deal, you, you can't help but feel if the name was John Smith, there's no way it would have been allowed to go through. So Exactly. Exactly. Um, yeah, it's it's not a great look at all. Um Another story which emerged uh, the other day, which uh, I must say I hadn't heard much about this until I read this story, but um, the AFL has locked into a similar uh, arrangement with a mid-season draft that we had in 2019, a mid-season rookie draft. Uh, Of course, the first one, well, sorry, the first one in about 28, 27-odd years, uh, was a big success, um, most memorably launching the career of Marlon Pickett, who debuted on grand final day after being picked up mid-season by the Tigers. But we also saw the likes of uh, John Noble at Collingwood. He's become a good player for them. Of course, David Noble's son. And Will Snelling at Essendon, who has won himself a new contract on the back of form he showed since being picked up in mid-season 2019. So it's already proved a useful vehicle for um, launching some careers. But the surprising thing about this story was the AFL reportedly um, pushed pretty hard and had, perhaps surprisingly, some tacit agreement from clubs and even the AFLPA about instituting not just one, but three mid-season drafts, one would be one to be held after round four of a season, one after round eight, and one after round 12. And uh, it's not going to happen, don't worry. But I read that and I just went, what? I mean, for starters, you're talking about uh, several um, not insignificant domestic competitions, the Waffle and the Sample for starters, who are already stuffed around by the one mid-season draft, let alone three. That would just throw your season's planning into absolute chaos. Um, And just this sort of belief that there has to always be something happening in the background, whether it's fixturing or speculation about a night grand final or, you know, the draft, um, is not the game enough. And, Finey, as you know, I mean... Well, I think we both get a bit tired of the endless uh, pontificating and writing and commentary about contracts right through the season, even when the finals are on. Imagine that with not only the national draft, the pre-season draft, but three mid-season rookie drafts. I just don't see the need for it. Um, you know, for so long it's been, you know, if your list suffers through injuries or whatever, it's just tough luck. I mean, this sort of, bailout option right throughout a season, the damage it had caused to domestic leagues, it's just crap. And fortunately, it's not going to be happening. But again, the mere fact that it's been thought of fills me with a fair bit of uh, fear and anxiety. Rowan, your kids are all grown up now. I've still got, yeah, I've still got a, a the youngest is um, 13, so she's still pretty young. In fact, can I just send a quick cheerio to David? who has now finished his VCE exams and is down at Phillip Island drinking himself to death with a group of close friends. So uh, I'll be picking up his body in a few days, I think. Anyway, carry on. Yes, well, that's what they do. So, and we don't either recommend it or approve of it. And I really don't. I don't think either of us are big drinkers. I don't drink. Well, I basically don't drink. Yeah. So where do they get it from? They're in, probably from us, but not 
hereditary, just we give them angst. It's a coping mechanism. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, kids, you don't get young children to decorate a cake. You see, you give them a cake, they decorate it, and they get to a point where, okay, that's it, job's done. But children have to keep on adding more and more and more and more and more until the cake's ruined. Have we got children in charge of the AFL? Really? It just, I mean, what mind says three rookie drafts other than the child's mind that just says if, if a bit more is good, then a lot more is better. Then even more must be better again without any constraint or notion that there comes a point in time where there is too much. And, and this is a perfect example. Now, if it's a thought bubble, then it should have remained a very private thought bubble. If it actually reached a point of serious discussion, then we've got problems as to the top end of AFL administration. What clubs need three cracks at a rookie draft to explore the world of rookies once their lists are finalised? I mean, there's just not that many rookies. Where were they going to go? Well, we know that the first port of calls are the secondary competitions, the new East Board, Eastern Seaboard competition, the Sanford, the Waffle. They know those competitions. They'll do that in one draft. Maybe the third draft wasn't a rookie draft. It was a Wookiee draft where we actually went into outer space and were drafting creatures like Wookiees and Ewoks into the EFL, mate, into the AFL because... Ah, the Wookiee draft. Yeah, because by crikey, if you can't get it right in one rookie draft, I wonder what you, why you need a second and a third four weeks and four weeks after that. Crazy, well, just, crazy it, thought bubble stuff. It just shows a flagrant disregard for any tier of football below the AFL. And it's sort of it's cutting off your nose to spite your face. All you're doing is weakening those competitions beneath the elite standard, one of which you've just, uh, you know, there's an argument you've stuffed that up anyway. I'm talking about the VFL. They're now this new sort of Eastern Seaboard competition. I mean, they've gone to some lengths to rework that. And then what? With, by by the way, rules that burrow from AFL and apparently the games Cluedo and Squatter are now part of that competition. What are you getting at there? Well, they're just trying different rules, isn't it? The oh, testing, sorry, yeah, yeah. Testing, testing ground for a game like Australian rules football. Correct, yeah. No, that's a very good point, actually. So uh, all those things sort of serve to to weaken the foundations of those lesser competitions, not to mention the sort of neglect that's been going on at absolute grassroots level, which anyone who's involved in a suburban or country competitional tea you're about. So I, I don't know what the thinking is there at the moment, but um, it's pretty bizarre. All right. So, so just on that, Rowan, yeah. isn't the time right for a, like a breakaway competition that is in no way connected to or beholden to the AFL? I mean, I, I, I reckon the time is right, say, for Victorian clubs that were VFA clubs, standalone clubs, to say, you know what? We don't need to be party to your feeder competition or your experimental rules competition. And we don't need to be travelling up to Aspley or 
up to Southport to further your means needs or to satisfy the needs of a second team from Brisbane or from GWS, we'll go it alone. I, I don't need. I, I I think the time is right, really, for that sort of independence. And I wouldn't be surprised if there are moves afoot. Well, we could get uh, 12 Victorian clubs breaking away. We could play six games on a Saturday afternoon at Lake Oval and Windy Hill and Junction Oval. It sort of sounds a bit familiar to us, doesn't it? Uh, well, you've you got to wonder. It's, uh, it's a strange football world we're living in. Now, um, a segue to our next item. One man who grew up like us finding in the days of the old suburban competition, but uh, bowing out of league football at the age of 64. That is Jeff Walsh, um, who has had a long and storied career in football administration. He started out at Fitzroy, as a matter of fact, went to Carlton as, uh, I think, recruiting manager there for quite a while, Uh, then to North Melbourne as um, football manager, and later on CEO, and then two separate stints at Collingwood as football manager for uh, seven years, uh, which took in their 2010 premiership, and then another stint of uh, five seasons until now. And uh, he's uh, he's a feisty man, Jeff Walsh. He's, I think most people in the footy media have got on pretty well with him, but uh, he's certainly not backward in coming forward if he's annoyed with you. In fact, one of my earliest dealings with him, finally, this is back in think about 1995. He just started at North Melbourne and uh, obviously hadn't prepared himself for Dennis Pagan's well-known media paranoia. And um, I was going to do or did an interview with Robert Pyman, who had just started at North and the interview went pretty well. I was pretty happy with it. And we we're uh, about to... Uh, put it in the paper and uh, get a call from Jeff Walsh saying, look, Dennis has, Dennis has torn me a new one. I'm there. We need you to not run the interview. And I sort of stood my ground. I said, well, sorry, mate. We can't leave a whopping big hole on page three of the sports section. And uh, we had a decent old Donnybrook, it's fair to say. I think most people have at some stage. But a good football man, uh, very highly regarded by... Um, uh, not me, just media, but players too. He's uh, one of those good sort of heart and soul football people that every club needs. So well done to Jeff on a great career. Um, and uh, oh, I, yeah, go on. I, yeah, plenty of dealings with Jeff. Great to talk to. Um, I felt gave a sincere answer. Always, of course, peddling the club line, but not to the point of doing himself an injustice by perjuring himself. So one of those really, I always, you know, him and Swanee now at Brisbane, good old-fashioned operators. They are indeed. Um, and uh, another another segue, um, David Noble, of course, has been at Brisbane for the last five seasons as their football manager. Now, of course, North Melbourne's new senior coach, well, uh, his replacement in that football operations role at Brisbane is a guy called Danny Daly, who people may or may not know. But um, I like this story. This is the rise of a guy who doesn't have any great significant football playing background, but universally respected as a very, very knowledgeable 
football person. Uh, I first ran into Danny when he was working at North Melbourne as a um, opposition analyst and uh, one of a, a lot of people in that role. And they tend to be not of any substantial playing background, just very knowledgeable football people um, who end up becoming great fonts of knowledge for their clubs. And Danny worked at North Melbourne. He ended up uh, in an assistant coaching role at North Melbourne. He went to Richmond and did similarly. And he's been at Brisbane now uh, as an assistant coach for the last six years. So he is moving into that football operations role. And I think this is great. And I think David Noble's appointment as coach is part of this too. Of course, we've seen it with Chris Fagan. Uh, Thank God we're finally moving away from this view that you have to have been a really successful AFL player to have any sort of meaningful role in uh, an AFL club in a football managerial or coaching sense. So I can assure uh, Brisbane people, Danny is a very, very smart footy person and will do very well in that role. So uh, well done to him and the merry-go-round, off-season merry-go-round of uh, club people going to different clubs in different roles continues. We might snare a job at a club uh, sooner or later, Finey. What do you reckon? Well, you know what? That mature attitude, that ever-increasing awareness that you don't have to have been a champion footballer to be of value to a football club, hopefully, uh, do you think that might ever catch on in the media? Uh, No, I don't. Because as as football clubs have become more savvy and aware, I think, um, I guess we're probably whining victims of the opposite in football media where the contracting football media space is being taken up more and more with ex-players rather than, you know, passionate football journos. Oh, you're talking about ex-players. Yeah, no, I agree with you on that. But uh, I think in a journalistic sense, you could uh, also restrict those comments just to that. I thought a lot of us were becoming replaced more and more by uh, the Stepford Wives, uh, certainly on radio. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> we've, been ste- yep, we've been stepped on by the Stepford Wives. Yeah, have you seen the Stepford Wives? Do you know where I'm coming from here? Mm, yeah, sort of. Explain yourself. Uh, cardboard cutout, yeah, all yeah, look yeah, the same, all sound the same, no yep, substance. Boring yep, as batshit. No, that's uh, that's what I, that's what I thought it is. It's you know every every house with a manicured lawn, every um, every football journalist with the same hairdo, the same suit, and the same opinion, <laughs> which is worth about two cents. Um, all right, that's we're, enough. We're, for- we're, we're not bitter much. <laughs> uh, that's enough for our news segment this week. Uh, well. Our uh, residual bitterness might come to play in this next segment, Fidey, because it's time for our observations on on life, um, the great uh, conundrum and and uh, soap opera that life can be. It's time for life hacks. Life hacks, building a better world. All right, Fidey. Uh, I'm not sure what arenas your life has ventured into this week, but here's a a snapshot of mine. I'm going to start with a a real-life case study. I had a um, a minor-ish medical procedure done last week. Uh, It involved being uh, 
outpatient for a day, but like I had to have a general anaesthetic and preparation and blah, blah, blah. So uh, I had a decent crack at the healthcare system uh, in a small, uh, well, Glenoris Private Hospital, in fact. And uh, not for the first time of late, it made me realise what uh, a wonderful service our healthcare workers provide us all. Um, and talking about doctors there, obviously, uh, but specifically nurses. I reckon nurses are the greatest people on earth. They do their jobs because they have an innate sense of caring for people. And um, that is reflected in the wonderful work that they do as a group. I, I just, and hopefully the pandemic has driven this home, but they are so underappreciated. And obviously it's come to light in the pandemic. These are people who put themselves in danger every day they do their jobs. Um, and a lot of them have got sick and some of them have died. Uh, if that doesn't drive home, just what incredible work they do, nothing else does. They're horribly underpaid too as a group for the wonderful service they provide to the community. And that, that is something that I'm getting bigger and bigger on, that as a society, we've got our um, pay structures completely ass about. The people who should get paid the most tend to get paid the least. But uh, I, I went into Glenoris Private Hospital for the day and I dealt with a whole range of, of nurses and doctors and, and they're all fantastic. And um, it's a job you can't do unless you really are motivated to help people. I want to send a quick cheerio to one nurse in particular, um, Kamala, actually the same as uh, the new American vice president, except she assures me it's pronounced Kamala. Uh, I had a great chat with her and she was wonderful to me, as were all her colleagues. So big thank you to the nursing staff at Glenoris Private Hospital. You're all saints, I reckon, um, putting up with the conditions and the danger that you do and your care for people and consistently going above and beyond the call of duty is a wonderful thing. And I think we should all be far more grateful than we are. And hopefully after what we've all been through in 2020, that will have a lasting impact on how we view the whole healthcare profession because they are incredible people who do a fantastic job. That's my first life hack. Finey, what's yours? China. Hack number one, China. Their behaviour in recent months towards Australia has been nothing short of reprehensible. I mean, intentionally inflammatory, a low to mid-level politician, zoo, a Twitter provocateur, the latest with his offensive doctored tweet that drew an apt response from Scott Morrison, only to be rebuked for rage and roar by the Chinese spokesperson, the ambassador here. Look, they are playing a game against Australia that I guess they know they can win because as trade partners, it's more us relying on them than them on us, but they've put tariff on various items, latterly wine and lobsters. The bottom line is they are behaving towards us. I, I, my, my take is that it's a gambit that they're behaving as they would against the Americans had they the positioning or do so and maybe sending a shot across the Americans' bow, this is what's coming your way. 
will take it out on one of your closest allies. But we can't stand for it. And very rarely do I ever look to Pauline Hanson for any advice on how to behave or act in a political sense. But her call to boycott Chinese-made products over the Christmas period, I think, is well-placed. I mean, enough's enough. I, I, I really think that we don't make for a good kicking, you know, a, a, a punching bag and it doesn't go with our national psyche and it shouldn't go with the way China's behaving towards us. So whatever action we take in retaliation, be it personal or national, I am all for. And may I say that that does not in any way go to any acts of racism or discrimination against our Chinese community here, the Chinese diaspora here, the Chinese community, uh, Australians, one and all we are, and it's nothing to do with them. They find themselves in the middle of this unfortunate situation being engineered for some reason by some insanity out of China, but their behaviour shall never be forgotten. Well, finally goes political. There's a role reversal for us. I've done the the sort of life observation. You've made the political statement. And look, I I, I tend to agree with you. Uh, I think we have to be careful about our response. I don't think we can be all swagger and bravado without thinking it through. But um, there's a point at which a line has to be drawn. So in essence, I agree with you. Um, all right, my second one. Now, this is back on a footy bent. There is a terrific piece on the Footyology website, which has gone up today by our own Michelangelo Rucci. And it is in the lead up to the national draft on December 10. Uh, fantastic overview about the whole drafting philosophy um, and how dramatically it's been compromised really ever since day one, which is all the way back and it's, there's been a bit of rewriting of history here. Well, most of us sort of think the draft started in 86, but there was actually a, an early version of the draft which only lasted two years in 1982 or the end of 81 and end of 1982. And um, an earlier form of the draft operated then. And the first person drafted into league football was actually Melbourne wingman Alan Johnson. So there's one for the trivia books. But... I think this piece, it's really worth a read. I encourage you to read it strongly. But it makes the point that, you know, the philosophy of the draft is a good one. And uh, it, it's you take the reverse ladder order and the bottom team gets the first pick, et cetera, et cetera. But it's never really operated like that. Um, and in recent times, the amount of compromises made to the, that fundamental draft philosophy are such that the thing, even on one level, it's barely understandable. It's long since got out of my grasp. Um, the thing about, you know, points and, um, uh, you know, the bartering that goes on there, the bidding uh, for academy selections and et cetera, et cetera. It's so difficult to understand, but more significantly than that, it just compromises the whole intended impact of the draft from a fundamental philosophical level, you sort of start thinking, well, what's the point of it? Now, among other things, th th these, this is just a sample of the amount of compromises that go into the draft now. 17-year-old access selection. Um, we've had three-year non-registered selection. 
We've had the Brisbane GWS Gold Coast Sydney Academies, delisted free agents, compensation picks of free agency, now compensation picks to Gold Coast, father-son picks. I think most people think that's a good one. Fair enough. GWS incentive rule selection with 17-year-olds, international and local talent access picks, New South Wales scholarships, priority picks, special assistance selections, zone selections, rookie elevations. Um, there's more, uh, said free agency picks, uh, the Northern Academies, the special assistance package to Gold Coast. There are so many impositions on the draft order that you look at a, an indicative draft order now, even before we do the live trades on the night of this draft, and it bears absolutely no resemblance to the latter in reverse order. So wh what is it actually, what function is it actually fulfilling? It's certainly not one about now giving the poorer perform clubs a bit of a leg up in terms of improving their performance. In, in fact, it's become an industry in itself. And we've talked about that a fair bit. One that now has all these interested parties in terms of media and sponsors and whatever. It's become almost the reverse of what it was engineered to do. It's propping up people's existence in the game. Um, and I think it's time we sort of sat back a bit and looked at that big picture and said, look, it's this just become a monster that sort of needs to be scaled back and, and undiluted really to its purest form because it's a long way from what it was supposed to be. It's an excellent piece by Michelangelo Rucci on the Footyology website. Uh, check it out. I urge you strongly to do that. All right, Finey, you're number two. You know that this was sort of told many years ago in the cards what was going to happen in the draft? In what way? Old in the cards, Rowan. Because when I started collecting footy cards, it was 66 cards to the set and you just collected 66 cards and put a jigsaw puzzle together on the back. And then by the time I, I abandoned them, because I, I was a keen collector into my adulthood, there'd been, you know, signature cards, limited edition, gold cards, rookie cards, you know, special uh, platinum cards, this card, that card. Just like they ruined the simple collecting of cards, they've ruined the draft. Holding the cards, Rowan. All right, it's a reasonable analogy. All right, your number two life hack, please. All right, look, I, I don't like the name. In fact, I hate the name. I don't like its origins and I don't really understand its purpose other than greed. And I'm talking about Black Friday. Look, in, in this country, Black Friday is the name given to the worst of the worst memories of bushfires that have spread through and, and taken lives. And Black Friday sadly reminds us of the start of the bushfires that ran ramp, rampant through up through northern far northern parts of Melbourne out through St Leonard's etc and onto Marysville and this was a horrible horrible time um, of course now it's associated with a big sales day and, and its origins are I think Amazon like they really need more sales because a trillion dollars isn't enough and it, it's Thanksgiving in the USA so it's, it's I, look I understand the motivation to sell as much as you can, but it really does favour the online traders, the big online traders, the megaliths, and it comes with a bad name and I don't think much good for 
a lot of Australian retailers. The big boys will love it, but not everybody's a big boy. Uh, yeah, that's a reasonable point. I saw a few people making that similar point on uh, social media as well. Um, yes, things that uh, have to be... Well, you need to show a degree of sensitivity to people who've suffered tragedy, I think, and that's one example of it. Another one, I could have made this a life hack, actually, but I won't, uh, is you may have read that story about a uh, film being made about Martin Bright and Port Arthur. Yeah. And uh, a lot of disquiet about that, and I think for very good reason. Um, all right, my final life hack, it's uh, a lighter one. It's just uh, about the dilemma of when people recommend TV shows for you to watch and you give them a go and you're not getting hooked in. That dilemma is how long do you persist with something um, to feel that buzz or to give it away. I'm someone who has a hard time once I've started watching something just cutting off before the end because I think I've invested all this time. There has to be some payoff. Well, sometimes it just doesn't happen. Now, I've got to be honest here. I'm, I'm feeling that way about a couple of shows, which I had highly recommended by people. Um, one of them is on Netflix. The other one I'm watching on Nine now, I think, with 100,000 ads as part of it. But the first one is the comedy Shits Creek, which uh, some people just swear by. Uh, I'm towards the end of season one. It's okay, but I'm not seeing the magic. I'm, um, I'm seeing a lot of parks and recreation in this show, and by that I mean gentle humour, some quirky, interesting characters, not necessarily lovable, and some moments of tittering but I'm not seeing the belly laughs finding I'm not I'm not uh uh I'm not laughing to the core like I do with shows like South Park and it's sort of that gentle humor doesn't do it for me I'm nearly at the end of season one I'm prepared to keep going for the moment but uh, anyone who hears this and is a devotee of that show convince me why I should keep going because I'm I'm not feeling it at the moment the other show and this, people have raved about this show. It is Friday Night Lights about the Dillon Panthers uh, American football team in Texas. People have raved about this show. Best TV show ever made, a few people said to me. Well, similarly, I'm near the end of season one of that. And all I'm seeing is a slightly higher brow version of the OC or Beverly Hills 90210. It's very soap opera-ish. Uh, the characters I'm finding reasonably one-dimensional, um, I'm not seeing it. And uh, some people whose opinions I really value have absolutely dug in on this and said it is a fantastic show. Again, I need to be convinced because I'm on the point of giving it up. I'm not seeing anything beyond the soapy element at this stage. So I'm in a bit of a quandary with those two shows, Shits Creek and Friday Night Lights. I need to be convinced to continue. If you can convince me, uh, hit me up on Twitter and tell me why I should keep going with them. All right, Finey, your last life hack, please. Don't bother with Shits Creek, for starters. Yeah, you're you're in that boat too? I watched a bit of it. It goes nowhere slowly. Not If you don't like it now, I don't think you ever will. And I've never watched Friday Night Lights. Okay. okay. My last one. There seems to be a war between the big boys in the fast food business. And it's going nowhere and it'll take you nowhere. 
Hungry Jacks brought out their big jack and then the, the ad that they claimed that they were being taken legal action against by the other mob, which I'm sure was just all theatre. Then the other mob, McDonald's, have had a real crack at KFC with a full range of chicken burgers. I guess KFC just keeps frying chicken. But it's a war that nobody's going to win because in the end, I've got to tell you that a McDonald's burger, whether it's got chicken in it, whether it's got their form of beef in it, or whether it's got Donald Trump's favourite, a square piece of fish, I don't know where squish, what sort of fish is square for a fillet of fish. They all taste the same, really. As for Hungry Jack's doing Big Macs, no, not really. I, and, and this isn't an ad for Andrew's hamburgers because we obviously love our sponsor because they make a great burger. But go down and get yourself a real hamburger. We, we recommend Andrew's. But get yourself a real burger or make one at home because the war between the fast food chains is a... No win war with no great returns and no special products and nothing new being invented by any of those three. I can tell you that much. All right. Well, that was a de facto ad for our wonderful sponsor, Andrew's Hamburgers at 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. I know you didn't mean it as that, but, uh, well, what better chance to get in another plug? Um, all right. That is Life Hacks for this week. I think it's time we turn the clock back, finally to a simpler time, a gentler time, and a time of terrific music, movies, TV, and footy memories. It's time for vinyl and video. Vinyl and video. Pressing rewind on our favourite music, movies, and TV. Oh, everyone loves this segment, don't they? Uh, I know a lot of people say to me, aren't you running out of years? Well, curiously, no. Um, well, no, we are running out of years, but I, I'm staggering them nicely now. So we've got a good, a good spread of eras. Last year, of course, we were very 21st century, talking 2007. This year, we're going back to the late 90s, uh, a great time in uh, many of our lives. And the year this year is 1998, an interesting year for music, for movies, for TV and for football. And we've got examples of our favourite picks of each genre. Let's kick off with music. Uh, and I'm going to throw it to you to open the batting finey. Hopefully you've brought an album with you and not just some pissy single of some artist you couldn't be bothered researching further. What have you got? I've got a single... Uh, good man. Couldn't find a single album in 1998 you liked? No, because this is a really good song. And by the way, our magnificent producer, Damon, will back me up on this. So up yours, Rowan. Okay. It's a bit of a favourite of his as well. It's a really interesting song. Bit of a one-hit wonder for the band, but it's got a, a backstory that's most interesting and a song that I really like. So the song is called The Way by Fastball. And I don't know whether our listeners are familiar with it, but it's worth a listen to. It's got a bit of a feel of, and when I first heard it, I thought, I've heard this before. It's a sort of um, band production number music, maybe out of the 60s, that was really popular to sort of dance music back in the early 60s. But it's not. It's a modern piece from 1998. 
And it tells a bit of a tragic story, but it tells it in a happy way. Now, the way is the story that lead singer of the band Fastball, Terry Scalzo, heard this story on the news about a couple. Now, they were the Howards, Layla and Ron, I think Ron Howard, Raymond Howard, Layla and Raymond Howard, an elderly couple, Layla's early Alzheimer's and Raymond recovering from brain surgery. And they set out from their home in Salado, Texas, to nearby Temple, Texas, for a Pioneer Day church gathering. They never made it. Even though it was only a short drive, two weeks later, they were found hundreds of kilometres away, sadly dead, in their car at the bottom of a ravine in Arizona. Nobody knows how they got so far off course and why they didn't stop and ask for help or just kept driving hundreds and hundreds of k's so the song is about this couple that lost their way but the actually the kids the uh, children of the elderly couple quite like the song because it talks about them sort of um driving and and finding eternal sunshine and eternal happiness it's it's a bit of a uh a sort of a, a spiritual song a little bit mystical but with an interesting backstory and a really catchy tune and a great song the way by fastball that is a very interesting story when you talked about the car being found at the bottom of a ravine i started conjuring images of uh, thelma and louise and the climax to that movie i wonder if it was they they had some fantastic last adventure and then said ah let's end it here and plunged willingly to their deaths. That is, uh, all right, well, I will go and check out that song. I have heard of the band Fastball, but got to say, I haven't really heard any of their work prior to you mentioning that song. So I will check it out. Okay, I have come up with an album. Now, just before I go with it to some other big albums of 1998, um, Hole bought out Celebrity Skin. That was undoubtedly their biggest work. Of course, Courtney Love. Uh, fronting up whole uh, fat boy slim. I'll throw in one for you, Fanny. I know you like your yep your dancey stuff. Fat boy slim. You've come a long way, baby. That was pretty big for him back in '98. Pearl Jam uh, bought out Yield. Uh, pretty tepid sort of album in my view. Probably the beginning of their uh, jumping the shark, if you like. And uh, locally, Powderfinger, who people have been talking about a fair bit lately. People hope to see them reform for the grand final. They brought out uh, Internationalist, which was a pretty big album for them. I have gone for a local album, but not by a big or well-known band. Or when I say well-known, I reckon there will be some of our listeners familiar with this band. The late 90s was a very fertile period for uh, Australian rock music, Finey, and there were some big acts and there was a, another tier of acts below them who, due to the, I guess, proliferation of material um, and lack of imagination on part of radio programmers, never got the exposure they deserved. There were three great Australian bands, in my view, all of the late 90s that should have been a lot bigger than they were. One of them was a band from Sydney called Finiscad. Uh, one was a Melbourne band called Pollyanna. And the third in this trifecta is another Melbourne band called Violetine. 
Now, these were great bands. If you ever listen to any of their stuff, you'll see what I mean. Violetine, uh, what sort of genre was it? It was pretty straight ahead rock, a, a bit of a punky edge, but very melodic at the same time. These guys could really sing. Uh, they had some great catchy hooks. They only had one album and uh, it came out in 1998. The album is called Small Speaker Joyland. Um, I can't even remember how I stumbled onto it. Uh, I used to see a lot of these bands on the ABC show Recovery, uh, fronted by Dylan Lewis on Saturday mornings. There's some great live footage from that show, incidentally, on YouTube. I dug up a uh, performance from The Mark of Cain, in fact, last night. But Small Speaker Joyland is the album I'm talking about. Violetine, they're a three-piece um, frontman, uh, bass player and vocalist, Glenn Lewis, uh, great album, highlight tracks for me, uh, Fuzzanova, Buzz, Birmingham, Any Day, Burning Sun, Finer Place, and You Know. It had several singles and some great video clips as well. Check it out, melodic, um, uh, punk pop almost. Uh, Three-piece band, Violetine, only the one album, but uh, a very, very good album it was. I still play it regularly. Did go and see them live a bit. They supported uh, a reasonably well-known American band, Buffalo Tom, who came out here in about 99. Violetine supported them, and I've got to say, blew them off stage. So they were very accomplished live as well. Favourite album of mine, Small, uh, small Speaker Joyland by Violetine. Let's talk movies. Finey, what do you got? Well, I've got one of my all-time favourites, one of the all-time greats, and... I wrote this up as part of my top 50 movies on uh, Footyology's website. So I'm going to do a potted version of that uh, review, if, I, if, if, if you don't mind. I don't. I don't mind at all. It is my favourite Coen Brothers movie of all time, and that is saying something. It is The Big Lebowski. So it gets my nod despite a plot that goes in many directions without ever making it to conclusionville. Don't try and make sense of the plot because it doesn't make sense. And the Coen brothers have admitted such that it really doesn't stand putting, being put under the magnifying glass. It's a story about the dude, a society dropout from set in 1990s, California and that's a time and a place that is willing to accommodate society dropouts. He's a pot-smoking, white Russian-drinking, 10-pin bowling layabout. And life's pretty easy for him, but of course in a Coen Brothers movie, nothing is that straightforward. So he's got a, a cross or two to bear, and one of them is his 10-pin bowling teammate and best mate, Walter Sobchak. Now, the dude is played by Jeff Bridges, Walter Sobchak by the great John Goodman. Walter Sobchak is a Sobchak is a Vietnam vet. He's a big mouth, gets him in constant trouble. In fact, he's a highly observant Jew, even though he's not Jewish. He was just married to a Jewish woman, and that's a former marriage at that. So it just shows what sort of person he is. They get in all sorts of trouble because of confusion over the name Lebowski, he is the wrong Lebowski. It goes in a million directions. And one thing that is common amongst all the characters, just about to a person, there might be one or two exceptions, is that every character in this movie 
is incredibly self-centred and selfish. Once again, well accommodated in 1990s California. It's it's both humorous and at times a bit gruesome. Again, another hallmark of Coen Brothers movies. It's got Steve Buscemi in it, who plays Donnie. Um, you can count. There's actually a bit of a YouTuber on how many times John Goodman character says, shut the F up, Donnie. But basically everything Donnie says is replied with that rather terse retort. It's got great standout characters like John Turturro's Jesus Quintana, who I quoted earlier on in the program. I don't know. I, I feel as though in my world, you've lived under a rock if you haven't seen The Big Lebowski, but a lot of people haven't. The great thing about The Big Lebowski is for fans of the movie and of Coen Brothers, it's one of those movies you can see over and over again and still get something out of. So it's an absolute favourite of mine, The Big Lebowski. And uh, very good review, Fawny, and uh, certainly a favourite of a, a lot of people. In fact, I'm going to say something you won't like, slightly controversial, but yep. for me, this film falls into the slightly overrated bracket. But I suspect, I suspect that's got a bit to do with the amount I've heard it talked up over the years. It's definitely a cult movie. So many people I've heard and read say it's the funniest movie they've ever seen. Um, I went into it with great expectations. And look, I liked it. Don't get me wrong. I didn't dislike it. But it just... It didn't, yeah, it's just, for me, it was a little too self-consciously different. And that, for me, I find is a bit of a trait of Coen Brothers and also Tarantino. And I've got a, I'm a bit of a, a realism man finding. And when they sort of start, when I start seeing signs of sort of um, style over substance, it loses me a bit. And you said yourself, the plot isn't, I, I need to have a fairly coherent plot, I think it's safe yeah. to yeah, say. Yeah, well, th this is certainly, if your style over, over feel, I mean, Coen Brothers movies, for me, are, are all about um, visually stunning, great, great eye to detail for dialogue. But if it's straight storytelling you want, done in a coherent and and sort of um, uh, easy to comprehend manner, then this isn't your movie. Fair enough. I do love a great story and uh, it's going to make a complete mockery of my choice, which really is a paper-thin story. <laughs> so I don't know why I said that. But uh, some other big movies. It was a pretty good year for movies. I, I just jotted down a few, all of which I liked. Uh, Pleasantville, um, The Wedding Singer, uh, Lock, Stock and Two Smoking Barrels, a uh, favourite of a lot of people. Um, the Truman Show, I thought that was very good. Um, Saving Private Ryan, of course, mega uh, blockbuster film that uh, sort of polarised people's opinions. I've gone for another mega film too, a comedy. And uh, when I talk about uh, riveting plots, well, this one is as basic as it gets, but it is very well written. Um, there's some fantastic both scripted and visual humour in it and I think arguably one of the most famous scenes in modern cinematic history. Actually, I'd be interested in your take on that. The film I'm talking about is There's Something About Mary and uh, starring Cameron Diaz 
as Mary Jensen, the main protagonist and the object of several men's affections. Um, ben Stiller, who plays Ted Stroman, um, a school uh, acquaintance, would-be prom date. Uh, of course, the film starts with the revisiting the prom date, which went horribly wrong. Uh, Ted catches up with her about 13 years later and tries to renew acquaintances. Um, and Matt Dillon, who is a private investigator who Ted hires to try to track Mary down. Um, a really good cast besides those bikes. But that's about the sum total of the plot. It's uh, several men all simultaneously in love with the beautiful Mary Jensen. But uh, some incredible... Um, visual humour in this film. The opening to it's pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, look, I can't go into it without spoiling it if you haven't seen it. Has anyone not seen There's Something About Mary? Um, of course, the opening scene, uh, the young uh, Ted has to uh, go to the bathroom and has a horrible accident. Uh, that might jog a few memories. And um, uh, the most famous scene, of course, when he renews acquaintances with Mary and is ready to go on a date and she knocks on the door and there's a gag about some hair gel, which I would say is as famous as the line from, God, what's that film called when uh, I'll have what she's having? What's that film again? I've just had the worst blank in movie. When gel. Harry met Sally. That's it. That's it. Well, I would put the hair gel scene from There's Something About Mary in the same boat in terms of popular culture, as uh, I'll have what she's having, wouldn't you? Uh, not really. Okay. I don't, because I refuse. <laughs> I, I, all right, I'm going to tell you something here. Oh, Robert. you're going to diss my film? No, 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 not at all. No, oh. I like something about Mary. I didn't love it, but I liked it. As of about oh, five days ago, I cannot and will not talk about that movie ever again. You can work it out. No, I, I just thought I'd, I'd, I'd see how long that dramatic pause could last for. That could be right up there among the longest pauses for dramatic effect in the history of podcasting. So I think we're going to leave that one in, Damon. Um, okay, I've got to work out why you won't watch that again. What was once funny is no longer funny to me. All right, hang on. Uh, and I'm telling you, it ain't funny. It's uh, horrific. Okay, all right. I think I know where this is going. Knowing you, I am now going to guess that you... You have, don't need to guess. You have recently caught your penis in your zip. I said I don't, I'm not going to go into it, but it ain't, <laughs> it ain't funny in real life. It's horrific. Well, simple and only, and I can tell you, only, only something in the just. Well, let me tell you, when you are caught in that situation, you are under extreme pressure to come up with a solution. And I'm telling you, it is an effing nightmare, mate. And somehow, I don't know how, I remembered something that I'd seen somewhere once before. And it worked, and it was a bloody miracle. And that is, I applied soap, and I used soap from one of those hand soap dispensers to the zipper, 
and the zipper just completely opened up and I was freed. And I'm telling you, I it's a bloody nightmare, mate. It is an absolute catastrophic disaster otherwise. All right. Well, can I give you a very simple solution? It's called wearing some underpants. Yeah. Well, on this occasion, uh, being forced to get the front gate to the where we live, I slipped on a pair of shorts. Uh, the, the doorbell went and I've got to go all the way out of the house to the gate. And that's all I did was slip on a pair of shorts and then had a friggin' disaster. Oh, well, at least it was that scene that uh, you recreated and not the famous hair gel one because I don't think any of our listeners could have coped with the imagery involved there. All right, thanks for that uh, wonderful anecdote, Finey. And uh, there you go. There is the film. There's something about Mary. It is very funny. It's very slapstick, certainly not highbrow. Um, and it certainly doesn't have a, a complicated plot. But it, I, it is a very good film, and I liked it a lot. All right, let's do TV. What do you got for us? 1998 TV. I wonder whether you know this program, actually. We've never discussed it, but it's actually one of my favourite shows of all time, one of my favourite comedies with not only the simplest premise ever to a TV show, but the simplest execution of a premise. Um, could you imagine a show that ran for, look, I think it ran for seven or eight seasons. Um, actually, no, not that many. Um, the original series ran for like three seasons and then there were quite a few Christmas specials. The entire premise of the show is a family sitting on a couch watching television. Have you seen uh, the Royal... Goggle box? No, 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 no. I mean, that is sort of reality TV. This is scripted comedy uh, written by Carolyn Ahern, who sadly has passed away, and Craig Cash. And they were two of the main stars in the program. Carolyn Ahern was actually an English girl who moved to Australia and went back to England to film this program. It's called The Royal Family. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, I think I've, I've certainly heard of it, and I think I saw a couple of episodes. So, yeah, I'm, very, I'm sort of familiar with it, yeah. Yeah, it's sort of foul-mouthed Jim Royal, uh, a, a ruddy-nosed, sort of that alcoholics-nosed uh, um, father sitting at the... Uh, in the main seat in the house, they just watch TV. It doesn't show what they're watching, criticising the world. His wife, Barbara, her mother, who really steals the program, and uh, his daughter, his son-in-law, who's a friggin' idiot, and his son. And they just are, are basically a Manchester family. Um, you know, he, he, he pots... The father's, you know, has a comment about everything. There's a bit of a potting machine. And it's just a, a very funny look at life, a, 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 a bit of a layabout husband. Um, yeah, it's, you've got to watch it to understand how the comedy works, but it actually works beautifully. It's all beautifully timed and very British. I know some people who don't like British comedy for some reason. Some people don't like American comedy. You're going to have to love British comedy to love this. The Royal Family, spelled R-O-Y-L-E. That's, some, uh, that's a concept that's sort of been fired up to, wasn't that? 
I was trying to think of the show, wasn't it? Shameless about another English family that was on. Oh yeah, they do a lot more than sit around and watch TV. Yeah, but I mean, isn't it interestingly? I, I I prefer the American version of Shameless. Yeah. Okay. But, um, you know, but yeah, the, oh, the Shameless is very much a, a, you know, a family without shame that get about and you know, half criminal, no, three quarter criminal, with a patriarch of low morals. All right, well, my TV choice for 1998, I'm going local again, support your local artists. And uh, this show uh, established a strong cult following, did pretty well in the ratings too from memory. Um, It was only around for three seasons between 98 and 2000, but was revived last year by one of the commercial networks. And I'm talking about the much-loved Sea Change um, fantastic cast. This would have to be one of the best casts assembled for an Australian production, I would have thought. Sigrid Thornton, David Wenham, William McInnes, John Howard, no, not that one, the actor, uh, Tom Long, and Kerry Armstrong, who I'm always slightly perturbed to see bob up in anything because she reminds me strongly in a visual sense of my better half, Abigail. Do you see that resemblance, by the way? Oh, you'd have to be familiar with Kerry Armstrong. Yeah, um, no, I, I know both. Yes. Yeah, I think there is a resemblance there. Anyway, Sea Change. It's a pretty simple premise. Again, uh, Secret of Thornton's character, Laura Gibson, is a high-flying city lawyer whose life comes apart when her husband is found guilty, uh, simultaneously found guilty of fraud and revealed to be having an affair with her sister, Um, So she escapes with two children in tow down to the fictional seaside town of Pearl Bay, um, where she becomes the local magistrate and uh, immerses herself in the lifestyle of a small, quaint and quirky country town. Does that sound familiar? Well, it's pretty familiar these days, but I think to be fair, I think Sea Change probably was at the vanguard of the movement towards those sorts of shows. Um, David Wenham's character is Diver Dan, who's the sort of enigmatic uh, local fisherman cafe owner, and there's a bit of sexual tension between he and Laura. Uh, William McInnes plays a returned investigative journalist, Max Connors. Uh, John Howard plays the crooked town mayor, Bob Jelly. The lovely Kerry Armstrong plays his beleaguered wife um, and Tom Long plays the lovable young guy, Angus. And look, it's it's very, the scripts are good. Um, it is quirky. Yeah, so I guess you'd look at it now and probably think it was a bit cliched, but I think back in 1998, it was quite novel. Um, and the characters, I like the characters. You do, you empathise with the characters. And I think that's what uh, was the great strength of the show, uh, indeed, combined with the great acting, because these are all really good actors. Good show, uh, enjoyed it a lot, as did a lot of people. Actually, uh, a lot of it filmed around the Bellarine Peninsula, down Barwon Heads Way, uh, and it did spark a bit of a a real-life sea change for a number of people. I remember reading several articles over the years about how the show had prompted people to reassess their priorities and make the break to a clean... 
uh, seaside environment. In fact, I now regularly fantasise about that and maybe doing so very shortly. Uh, no, I don't know what's going to happen there. But anyway, it's a good show. Sea Change, uh, still around, I think, uh, on streaming somewhere, if you haven't caught up with it. Um, some pretty good local fare there. All right, we're going to finish off this God, you're weird. What's that? God, you're strange. What's that? So as a 33-year-old, you were a man of contradictions. On one hand, you're listening to amped up, pretty hardcore, non-mainstream rock. Yeah. And then when the when the album finishes, you're sitting down to an episode of Sea Change. It's a, a real dichotomy, I'll tell you. Well, I did, uh, you know, you're talking about someone who got married at the age of 23 and yet yeah, came, yeah. came from a non-conventional family upbringing. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a man of contradictions, finding I'm very hard to categorise um, and uh, very difficult to get along with, hence my succession of doomed and toxic relationships. <laughs> well, this is this really is the um, confessional edition of, of footyology, isn't it? Actually, this is not even true. Uh, I've only had three long-term relationships. One was quite successful for a long period of time. The one that's still going is, I think, reasonably successful. And the one in the middle was an absolute bloody nightmare, which I might talk about one day when I'm feeling brave enough and the person is successfully on the other side of the globe fronting a Fox News program or something. <laughs> I think that's quite likely, to be honest. Couldn't happen quick enough either. Um, all right, let's talk footy. What's your footy memory from 1998? Well... I loved him, still love him, feel for him. Don't think he's ever going to be appointed a senior coach, unfortunately. The great Robert Harvey went back-to-back in Brownlow medals. And, yeah, it's tainted a bit, unfortunately, the year. You know, Chris Grant uh, probably should have won the Brownlow medal, but that doesn't take away from the great Robert Harvey. And, And I think it's a wonderful achievement to have been Awarded back-to-back Brownlow medals. Hang on, wait, just correction there. Chris Grant should have won it in 97. Sorry, 97, that's right. Um, But, again, that sort of taints the back-to-back nature of it. But, yeah, 1998, he was a comprehensive winner of the Brownlow medal. And I just think uh, I feel a bit underrated, even though generally accepted as, you know, a great midfielder. They talk always of during that era of Buckley, Heard and Voss. Well, I guess it's my St Kilda bias, but um, he was just a magnificent player. His delivery was underrated. He didn't have the maybe power depth of kicking of a Nathan Buckley or Voss, and he might not have had the um, versatility of a Heard, and he might not have had the premiership status of Michael Voss or of James Hurd, but boy, his evasive skills, his incredible engine, and his ability, every game that he played in, his consistency, I think, puts Robert Harvey right up amongst those three superstars of football. And for mine, dual Brownlow medalist capped off with that great 1998 uh, is testament to a wonderful footballer. 
No, I, I agree. And I, I agree with you that I think he is underrated in the pantheon of greatness. I think a lot of that's got to do with the, his nature as a person. He's just so quiet and introspective, you know. Um, you wouldn't even say media shy because he's always been quite prepared to do media. And I've always found what he's had to say on footy insightful and, and interesting. It's just his manner. You know, he just doesn't have that sort of assertive personality. And yep. I think rightly or wrongly, oh, wrongly, um, that sometimes has a lot to do with it. But he was at the peak of his powers and it was a pretty good era for St Kilda, that one. And not surprisingly, he was at the forefront of it. So, uh, yep, no, good call. My call on 98 is that year's grand final. A uh, number of reasons. I think it's underrated as a spectacle, this one. Um pretty amazing turnaround in the second half from Adelaide, which like Robert Harvey also went back to back 97, 98 flags, but a number of remarkable things about this achievement by the Crows. Number least, they finished fifth on the ladder in 1998, uh, three games behind North Melbourne, who were the standout team all year, along with the Western Bulldogs uh, lost their first final by eight goals, which in the current system would see them eliminated week one, but under the old system, they survived. Promptly turned it around and beat Sydney in Sydney. Absolutely smashed the Western Bulldogs in a preliminary final by, I think, 68 points. And then on grand final day, went in rank underdogs against a dominant North Melbourne. And in North's great era, and North fans will agree with this, the best football they ever played was, in fact, in 1998. Geez, they are a seriously good team. They'd strung a lot of wins together on the trot leading into this game. And it should have been over at halftime. The scores at halftime, North Melbourne leading by 24 points, Adelaide 4-3, North Melbourne 6-15. They should have been at an absolute minimum eight goals up and game over. They stuffed themselves up. They shot themselves in the foot finally by in the second quarter, kicking an incredible two goals 11. And you may remember some of these shocking misses. Wayne Carey that day ended up with one goal four, famously bounced one along the ground rather than just kick it normally from about 10 metres out and missed in the second quarter. Um, four goals. Basically, the Crows been kept in it in the first half by Ben Hart, who was outstanding in defence. Second half, massive turnaround. Andrew McLeod, dominant performance in the middle. He went on to win his second Norm Smith medal in a row, as in the second half, the Crows piled on 11 goals, 12 to North Melbourne's two goals, seven. In fact, this is the most incredible stat from this game. Do you know what North Melbourne kicked to the city end of the MCG in that grand final finding? Please tell me. They kicked two goals, 18. Wow. (laughs) That is just... This is far and away, I mean, in my lifetime, I know Essendon in 48 drew a grand final kicking 7-27. This is definitely second on the list for blown grand finals, uh, the final scores. And in the end, Adelaide won by 35 points in the end, actually more than they beat St Kilda by with a similar second half turnaround, 15-15-105 to 8-22. 70, North Melbourne, seven behinds in the last quarter. They still had their chances then. Now, has there ever been a man more unlucky to miss out on a Norm Smith medal than Darren Jarman? He kicked six goals in the 97 win, five of them coming in the last quarter, couldn't win the Norm Smith medal. The following year, 
He kicked five goals, three against North Melbourne. Pivotal to that second half comeback. Couldn't win the Norm Smith then either. 11 goals in two winning grand finals, Darren Jarman. What a champion he was. Ben Hart, like I said, a really good player. Uh, Andrew McLeod goes without saying. Sean Wren, terrific in the ruck. Peter Caven played a really good game that day too on Wayne Carey. This was a nightmare for North Melbourne. And uh, sorry, North fans, uh, I know whenever it's mentioned, you get the shakes, understandably, because it was just a golden opportunity let slip. Fortunately, the Roos atoned for it the following year with uh, another flag to give them two wins in a four-season period. But this was definitely the one they should have won. And Adelaide's second flag in a row, 1998. And that is our year of 1998, retrospectively, music, movies, TV, and football. There's only one place for this podcast to go now, Finey, and that is in the direction of a strong, robust rant. On Footyology, the rant of. Okay, Finey, I hope you're in a good ranting mood. Uh, I've certainly had plenty of material to work with this week. Uh, as you might imagine, a little preoccupied with another balls up at my club. And uh, I've got a few thoughts on that I'd like to share with everyone right now. Well, I hope you're going the full 100%, not taking 9% off. <laughs> yeah. Well, at least I'm telling you about it up front. All right, I'm looking forward to it. Watch out, Essendon. One, two, here he goes. I'm pissed off with AFL clubs, Finey. Sure, COVID's hit the football industry hard, but it doesn't give them a right to try to wind the clock back to the days of the Industrial Revolution and the exploitation of labour. Did you see that story on Tuesday about Melbourne trying to squeeze up to 25 hours per week of IT work from eager graduates for nothing? They got called out on it pretty quickly on social media by a number of young people who've already been through the washing cycle of an AFL club, usually in the media department, where they generally work ridiculous hours for stuff all, then have all sorts of guilt trips laid on them when they arc up about it. Ask someone close to this show, Finey. Good on them for doing so, I say. It certainly had Melbourne CEO Gary Pert on the back foot. He said... The club accepts that there were elements of the advertisement that worded poorly and lacked clarity, and we will ensure this does not occur again. For that, I reckon you can read, we got sprung. In fact, when I read it, it was in the voice of one of those villains in Scooby-Doo when they inevitably get caught and say, I would have gotten away with it if it wasn't for those pesky kids. But who knows how Essendon thought they'd get away with dropping a 9% pay cut on their players by way of a Friday evening email last week. Talk about bad timing. It's as though the Bombers are doing every conceivable thing to piss off their entire playing group these days. Well, those who haven't already literally pissed off to other clubs, that is. I've been hearing some pretty ordinary stuff lately about life out at the hangar finey, not just among the playing group, but the entire staff of the club. The Bombers had a crap year on the field, lost a truckload of members, then some of their biggest names, and times are tough. Belts have to be tightened on all fronts. But even that still doesn't give you the right to turn the workplace into something out of a Charles Dickens novel. Seriously, Finey, I was out there the other day and I saw this cue snaking out of the kitchen. Immediately, I clapped eyes on this little urchin-looking character with torn trousers and a dirty cloth cap. And I thought for all the world he'd come straight from the coal mines. It was depressing stuff. 
but not as depressing as when he finally got to the Bain-Marie, looked up at the stern-faced cook behind it and said, please, sir, I want some more. Now, I know what you're thinking, Fidey. That's cute. The players were putting on a pre-Christmas performance of Oliver Twist. But this was no stage production. That kid was, in fact, none other than Zach Merritt asking about his next contract. And the stern-faced cook, yep, you guessed it, CEO Xavier Campbell. After he sent poor Zach to the corner for his impertinence, it dawned on me that maybe the boss was doing penance too for that bizarre comment when the Bombers' pay gambit came a cropper. Did you see his quote? He said, I'm disappointed that we didn't consult properly with the players prior. I'm sorry? Like, you did it, mate. You didn't consult them. You're disappointed in yourself? I would have thought I'm sorry was probably the appropriate phrase there. It's a unique way of accepting responsibility, though, one which might have been interesting applied to some famous historical events. Imagine, say, they'd captured Hitler in 1945. What would he have said? I'm disappointed I invaded half the countries of Europe, killed several million people, and tried to exterminate an entire race. Oh, oh, okay, Adolf. Well, look, don't do it again. What about Lee Harvey Oswald? I'm disappointed I assassinated the US president. Or our very own Daryl Braithwaite. I'm disappointed I took a mediocre song by Ricky Lee Jones called Horses and somehow turned it into the Bogan National Anthem. Yeah, well, not as sorry as we are every spring carnival, Daryl. Now go back to your room and keep working on that apology for your entire solo career, not to mention bloody Sherbet. And if you see young Zach Merritt on your way there, tell him to get a move on. These executive washrooms aren't going to wash themselves, you know. <laughs> now, gee, I, I was picturing, I've got to admit one thing, Rowan. When you were doing your rant, I was picturing Darcy Parrish as the boy asking more. But, yeah, oh, workhouse conditions down at, where is it, Essendon Fields? The hangar. Don't you think, uh, I think Zach Merritt's got a sort of urchin look about him. Although, no, I know where you're going, going with uh, Darcy Parrish. They've certainly both got the builds of urchins. I don't know what happened to the weights room at the hangar. I would have thought they would have spent a bit of money on it, but there you go. And, uh, yeah, obviously uh, a lot of people pleased I managed to work in Daryl Braithwaite as well. Um, all right, I've got no idea where you're going with yours, but let's find out. I'm going to count you in now. Three, two, one, rant. What's been happening to Melbourne's weather recently? And by recently, I'm talking about the last week or so, where we've been, unfortunately, beset upon by humid conditions. I know most of us haven't been able to go to Queensland, so Queenslanders come to us, and I don't like it. I'm a hot weather, cold weather person. I don't like the idea of yesterday being 28, tomorrow being 28, and the day after being an all-time high of 29. I can see why they say tropo, from the tropics. It's not my way of living. I don't want to spend the rest of my life walking around in a bintang singlet, board shorts, half cut, trying to drink my way out of sweatdom. No, it's not for me. I don't know what it is, Rowan. Is it El Nino, El Nina, El Diablo, El McPherson? She did used to make me sweaty, but now I just think it's bloody annoying. As far as I'm concerned, I want Melbourne weather back the way it used to be. Four seasons in a day, not one long sweaty day. I hate it, but of course my garden loves it. It's been growing like topsy. I get on the mower, I mow the lawn. I turn my back, the lawn is back. 
In fact, I never planted bamboo, but all of a sudden I've got a feeling that I'm growing bamboo, pineapples and rambutan. Rowan, some people call it global warming. I call it global sweating. Because for the last week and a bit, my globes have been sweating like buggery. Oh, we've had some shocking visual imagery this episode. We've had your todger caught in your zipper, and now you're talking about your globes. There's just nowhere left to go with you, Fanny. It's just far too much information uh, on your behalf, this um, particular podcast. I've got to say, though, you raise a good question. How much quicker does grass grow in summer than winter? It's unbelievable. I really, I'm mowing it, and then the day after I'm thinking, did I mow it? And, the, and, you know, because you've got to empty the cactus, it fills up with this heavy, heavy sort of green grass. Are, are there any goats? Are, do people keep goats in Melbourne? I need a goat and two cows. <laughs> uh, good synergy between our rants too. Of course, the mention of the Bintang singlet inevitably conjures visions of drunken bogans at the Melbourne Cup Carnival singing none other than horses. And I think that's imagery we could all do better without. You, you, know right. what I, you know what I love about that song? I mean, it has been overdone to death, and you're right. It is the quasi-anthem of a drunken race crowd. Big, you know, not much to be proud of there. But you always hear somebody go, you know, it's not about horses. <laughs> I haven't really listened to it all that carefully. I don't care what it's about. <laughs> the fact that I keep saying horses is annoying enough. I wonder what Ricky Lloyd-Jones thinks of it all. Um, all right, we're done here. Uh, thanks for your patronage, everyone. As usual, um, we appreciate your support. Uh, we also appreciate the support of our marvellous sponsors, Finey, who you're going to plug again right now. You want a burger, a real burger, not one from the, those giant corporations that copy each other? Go for a joint that's original. And best 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park. Imprint this on your appetite. Andrew's hamburgers. Simple, huh? And I'm also going to plug our great supporters, Nick Spartel and West Point Properties. You want it built well, West Point Properties and Nick Spartel. That was another dramatic pause. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the master of them this week. Um, all for effect alright, uh, thanks everyone uh, and again as usual um, if you'd like to really help our little operation along you can jump on the Acast supporter page right where you're listening to this or you can patronise the Footyology website uh, we are linked with Patreon and you can become an official uh, Footyology supporter for $5 US a month. Plenty of great reads there. Martin Flanagan this week, incidentally, wrote a ripping piece about Trumpism in Australia. And uh, he certainly explores some interesting thoughts there. Jump on and have a read. Uh, good piece on The Simpsons too, if you're a bit of a Simpsons fan. By none That's other, by your daughter. It is indeed. Andrea Connolly, aspiring uh Film, TV, critic, uh, aspiring, well, aspiring lots of things, but I won't embarrass her any more than she probably already is if she hears this. Thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, Drafts coming up in a week or so. We'll have one show before then. We look forward to bringing it to you right then. Have a great week, everyone. We'll see you later.